everyone, and welcome to Who Knew, a history podcast starring not two, but three of your favorite social studies teachers from Bishop O'Connell High School. I'm Mrs. Allgood, and here with me as usual is Mr. Rickson, and today we have a special co-host, Mr. Kasikov. Welcome, Mr. Kasikov. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, uh, I listen to enough podcasts, so it's good to uh, finally be on one. Um, and I feel like this is a rare uh, occasion when you get the three best O'Connell history teachers in the same uh, the same room, so to speak. So you yeah, said it. You, you said it, not me, Mr. Kaskov. I'm the department chair. I didn't say I didn't say one way or the other. So I don't want uh, I don't want our colleagues to get too upset. I just want everybody to know that on the record, that's what Mr. Kaskov said. So <laughs> yeah, I was not, I was not to say that. You said it, we were all thinking it. Oh boy, <laughs> all right. Um, well, to our to our regular listeners, either our, our captive audience of students or any of our worldwide listeners, an unusual episode of Who Knew It History podcast, uh, Mr. Rickson and myself usually pick just some topic in history that we wish that we could teach more about in school or something that really interests us. And then we go into it for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on what have you. Um, but today, we thought we would open the floor to some student questions. So we have what we in the podcast biz call a mailbag episode, I'm told. Um, so we will be really organizing today's episode around some of the really cool questions that came into Mr. Rickson and myself over the last week from our students. So just want to reiterate, too, to our students, so this is kind of a funny story as well. So this is a, as, as Mrs. Allgood said, it, it's pretty common as you hear other podcasts where listeners uh, send in questions. This episode is not the history of mailbags, which is what Mrs. <laughs> Allgood thought it was going to be a couple of weeks ago. And then when, when Mr. Kasikov and I explained what we were thinking, she said, oh, that makes way more sense. So... Um, I mean, I'm really excited to learn about the history of mailbags and mail carrying. <laughs> I was pretty excited about the other option too, uh, well, but this will also be fun. <laughs> well, maybe we can maybe we can file that away onto our our season two list, which we are already compiling. Mrs. Allgood and I already have some great ideas for some some future episodes, and and I I know that Mrs. Allgood and I both just want to take a minute to to thank all the students who sent us questions. You know, sometimes sometimes Mrs. Algun and I don't always get a sense of who's listening or who's paying attention, but the incredible feedback and, and really the positive response that we've gotten for the podcast, I mean, everyone has been incredibly thoughtful about. They loved the summer assignment and they loved listening to it and their parents are listening to it. And, and you know, we would obviously have loved to answer all of your questions um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do that, but I know that for many of you, um, I've sent messages saying that some of your ideas are actually good for full length episodes. So stay tuned as we get ready for season two. We'll also be probably doing a couple of bonus episodes between now and the end of the school year. So, um, you know, so don't don't lose hope. We might be doing your your topic or answering your question at, at a later date. But again, we just want to thank everybody for just some really thoughtful, thought provoking really really just clever questions a lot of them yeah. are kind of around the things we would probably talk about in a normal a regular who knew episode um so so again i i just want to personally thank um thank all the students and uh, and also thank mr kasikov who who wanted to jump in here and is going to be our uh, our moderator for the day so uh, so thank you very much we really appreciate it yeah i appreciate it as well thanks um i think we should get right into questions i'll just quickly say you know i've had a lot of uh, these students are your, both of your students uh, in world history or in economics. So I know the the quality of the students, you know, the intelligence, the curiosity, uh, and it definitely shows uh, in the questions that I'm sure you're, you guys experience in the classroom. So um, our first question, uh, Shaley asks, what do you think would be the outcome if the natives refused to move off their land, fought against the U.S. government, and won? And Marianne had a similar question, what happened to the indigenous Americans following the Indian Removal Act of 1830? So these are two of, of, of my students, and I want to thank both of them for, for asking uh, these, these questions. Again, I, I combined these two questions 
because they obviously are both connected to the fate of indigenous peoples in, in the Americas. And, and I try to answer these questions kind of in two different ways. I think that for Shaley's question, it's, I think my answer is probably going to be more of a hypothetical, but I think as with Marianne's, th there is an actual answer. I mean, you know, there's actually a concrete result of what happened or, or something, or, or something that happened to the indigenous peoples following the Indian Removal Act. So I honestly don't know if native resistance would have been effective. And we talked about this with our students with regards to the Colombian exchange. And really just that issue of infectious disease was, was something that I don't think Native Americans in the 14 and 1500s would have been able to overcome. You know, as we said in class, it's estimated that 90% of indigenous Americans in the New World at the time of Columbus died from infectious disease, right? We talked about things like smallpox or influenza. Now on the flip side, one of the things we looked at in class was how not, not all Europeans treated Native Americans the same way. And, and I kind of wondered sort of a what if was, I wonder if all Europeans took the approach that French colonizers did. And, you know, the French tried to live peacefully, coexist with their Native American neighbors. We talked about that in our Isaac Jogues episode for the summer series. And, you know, maybe the Spaniards or the English or the Dutch would have formed stronger bonds. But I think, unfortunately, just the global history of colonization kind of always ends up with Native peoples being subjugated by colonizers. And, and most often those colonizers are white Europeans or white Americans. Now, as for Marianne's question, many of the Native Americans who were forcibly removed via the Indian Removal Act were members of the Cherokee tribe. And the Cherokee settled what was then known as Indian Territory, which is now the present-day state of Oklahoma. Now, under the federal government, the U.S. government rep has officially recognized 574 native tribes in the United States. And that's managed through what's called the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, or as it's also called, falls under the Interior Department. And the BIA helps tribes coordinate education and healthcare programs, disaster relief, land management and conservation. There's actually tribal law enforcement in native territory. So if you're on an Indian reservation, it's a law enforcement system within that reservation. So it has its own police force, its own courts, its own judicial system. For, for students who are really interested in, in this, I, I'm happy to suggest another podcast or recommend another podcast entitled This Land. It's from a reporter who is herself a, a Cherokee Native American, and she really talks about the history of the Trail of Tears, the Cherokee being moved to Oklahoma, some of the legal challenges that they have faced in Oklahoma. And it actually is, an, is, a, is a series that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. It actually talks about a recent Supreme Court case on that particular issue. So I, I hope that answers those questions. Again, Shaley's was a little more hypothetical and, and Marianne's again had a, you know, has a, a concrete answer that I hope is, is helpful in, in learning a little more about that, that moment in history. Yeah, Mr. Richardson, I would agree that I think the key point you made with that was that the native resistance would not have been successful, you know, even if they tried different methods. I think an interesting counterfactual to think about is what if at different points did the Native Americans try to assimilate more into what the colonists and later what the Americans were trying to do, not implying that they probably should have done that because the burden was on the colonists and the Americans to treat the Native Americans better, more like what the French did. Uh, but it's just kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about. Yeah, it is really one of those kind of interesting what ifs of of American history. And and we'll, you know, as as Mrs. Allgood knows, as we kind of get closer to this uh, in the second semester, we'll be talking about the settlement of of the sort of last part of the Western frontier. And and sadly, assimilation often meant assume these, you know, white Anglo European American values or or lose your sovereignty, lose your land. It's it's really, you know, when we talk about continuity and change over time for our A push students, it is there's a lot of continuity and it's really it's very dark and it's very sad and it's it, it's not it's probably one of the more shameful shameful parts of of our our shared American history for sure.
Okay, switching gears, Will asks, what is the most interesting fact you've learned from a student? Okay, so this was the first question that came to me about a week ago, and I've been thinking about this every day since I got that question. Um, so I, I don't know about you guys as teachers, especially history teachers who like love their content, but I feel like I learn like probably two or three really cool things every week from my students. So please forgive me if I'm not remembering the cool fact that you told me because they do kind of like blend together and I can't remember what did I read somewhere or what did I hear from someone. So I'm just going to stick with the more recent ones that I learned. So one of one of my Patricks, uh, it's a Catholic school. There's lots of Patricks. Uh, he mentioned this in my A Push class a few weeks ago. We were learning about the the era of good feelings in American history and why America has like different grammar and math systems than like other normal countries. Kind of fits in with like the new nationalism of the new country. But anyway, he told me this really cool story about pirates and the metric system. So, of course, I had to go Google it and read the whole story. So it's 1793. The U.S. is looking to adopt a standard system of measurement because all of the states were using their own ways of measuring things, which was, like, really confusing. So New York was still using, like, old Dutch methods. New England was using English. In Virginia, there's, like, some French and Spanish stuff floating around. So our boy Thomas Jefferson was like, I'm the guy to fix this because of course, Thomas Jefferson, who's like a jack of all trades is going to try to fix math in the United States. Um, so he wrote to one of his French scientist buddies from like back in his secretary of state days um, to come over and introduce the metric system to Congress. Cause the French were in the middle of developing like measurement based on like grams and kilograms and all that stuff. Um, so his buddy hops on a ship and he's like, yeah, going to go teach the metric system. And he he's crossing the Atlantic and then his ship was seized and he was murdered by pirates. So the metric system never made it to Thomas Jefferson and they ended up adopting whatever it is that we use now instead. Can I just, that can is, I just jump yeah. in here for a minute? So so let me, let me see if I get this straight. Okay. We, we don't have the metric system in the United States because of pirates? Essentially. Amazing. Sim Amazing. Simple, super simple answer, but I'm going to go with it because it sounds awesome. <laughs> That's probably the United States' uh, loss. Um, all right. Uh, Matthias asks, how do you believe slavery has affected us in modern day society? And what or how do you think we can move past these racial divides in order to help our future America? Yeah, this is a really, a really good question. And we got several questions connected to this. And I think that a number of students were obviously seeing some of the, the news stories and the events that happened over the past, this past summer. I also want to give a shout out, not just to Matthias for asking this question, but also uh, my two students, Gemma and Maddie F., um, both asked similar or related questions to this. And, and actually, a lot of this is going to be stuff we're going to talk about with reconstruction and kind of moving forward into the second semester. So I think there, there's no question that the legacy of slavery has a profound effect on the United States today. And we are still feeling its effects, particularly the socioeconomic challenges that many African-Americans and people of color face in the United States. There are, right, you know, African-Americans and people of color are disproportionately affected by, you know, healthcare outcomes. Right now, they're experiencing a lot more stress and, and, real, and death uh, as a result of COVID-19. And that doesn't just end with slavery. It's the legacy of segregation, the legacy of Jim Crow, that African-Americans suffered under in the aftermath of the Civil War. I mean, you think of African-Americans were enslaved in the United States for 200 plus years. They gained their freedom with the 13th Amendment. And then for 100 years, they live in a separate but equal Southern society for the most part, and in, in the Northern states for that matter. I think one of the ways that we move past these racial divides is I think first off, we have to acknowledge the pain and suffering that they caused. 
And then we have to take active steps to reform and fix our political and socioeconomic systems. And many of the protests and activism that we saw across the U.S. this past summer were really an effort to to acknowledge, to ensure that all Americans acknowledged those inequalities and then push people to make substantive change. Now, Mrs. Allgood and I did a number of episodes in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd about Juneteenth and Ida B. Wells. And I would also encourage students to listen to one of our episodes on the 1994 crime bill, which I think really covers many of the same issues that we're talking about right now, sort of what, where have there been efforts to try and make reforms? Where have those reforms been unsuccessful? And what can we do to further reform or further strengthen the system? But, you know, it's, it's very clear in many of the questions that the students submitted that, you know, you're really looking at what we're talking about in history and how it connects to stuff in the present day. And, and that's obviously what I think is so powerful about history is it's not, it's not a bunch of stuff that doesn't affect us anymore, that more often than not, it has a profound effect on us right now. And I think that this is one of those very, very clear examples. You know, Mrs. Allgood, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on this, because I'm sure you got a lot of questions that were similar or kind of in a you know, related idea to this. Yeah, no, I definitely got a few as well. And just to kind of reiterate what what you said there, Mr. Rickson, I think this is one of those really rare times in history where you can look around and you can see history happening. And it also shows just how what the three of us do as a discipline is like actually really effective. I mean, for every student who's ever asked, oh my gosh, why do I have to learn about history? It's just memorizing stuff. No, not really. It's about understanding how the world works, how people interact with each other, how we got to where we are and how you can make sense of injustice and whatever and everything that's either good or wrong with the world. Um, History has an answer to it. So I think, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't add much more. I think you answered this really, really eloquently, Mr. Rickson, but um, yeah, Mr. Kaskove, do you have any thoughts? Just one thought. And I think, um, Mr. Rickson got at this a little bit, you know, the best way to understand the present. And I think we all, you know, when we're trying to understand the present, we realize that the world can be a pretty complex place. You know, it can seem like a a bad place at a lot lot of times. But I think if you really want to understand the present, it's much more uh, effective to go back and study history, read books, um, because that can be a little bit easier to kind of figure out so-called answers. Where in the present, the answers are, Uh, not as clear always. Okay, so next question. Gavin asks, how does the state of Minnesota get the small bulge of land on its northern border? It makes our border with Canada look weird. It makes it look so weird. Okay, I love a good geography question. Your girl loves some maps. Um, So this is also another really cool fact that I learned from a student recently, i.e., Gavin, when he asked this question, I had no idea that Minnesota has a non-contiguous border. Did did you guys know that? Or do I just like not think about the Midwest that much? I had literally never heard of this until I saw it in our our episode rundown today. So I'm I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, I, I, I put a picture of it on the drive. I'll have to put it on our Instagram for our listeners to see. But yeah, there's, um, they have a non-contiguous border. So like, I'm going to try to explain the map. So just to the north of its northernmost border with Canada, there's this like eastward facing nub thing. Um, So I love stories about how states and countries get their shapes. It's pretty cool. And I'm really glad that Gavin asked this. So I had a really good excuse to go look it up. So this little nub thing is called the Northwest Angle. And it's the northernmost part of the contiguous United States or the lower 48. It's only 123 square miles. And it looks like it should be in Canada since it shares a very clear border with the province of uh, Manitoba. So it's, the story is really complicated. So I'm going to try to give you my best oversimplified version of this. Short answer, it's because of the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended um, the American Revolution. So basically, 
we didn't really understand what the country looked like west of the Mississippi River yet. So the treaty said, all right, well, we can everything that's like north of Lake Superior and west of the Mississippi River, but like on the Canada side will be part of British Canada and then everything to the east and to the south will be the United States. Well, it turns out um, the parallel for like Lake Superior and Mississippi River, they don't intersect like on a grid like you would think that it would. And it left this like one little leftover little nub which technically belongs to the United States. Um, over the years, Canada slash Great Britain has tried to buy it just to like make Canada normal again. Um, but the U.S. government has repeatedly rejected these these offers, and people live there in in the Northwest Angle. So, Mrs. Allgood, I have I have two follow up questions. So my first I'll, one. I'll do my best. So my first one is, I know that you teach, I know that Mr. Kaskov teaches our world geography class and you teach our human AP human geography class. Is nub thing a technical geographic term that either of you use? Yes, absolutely. As determined by the United Nations decree of technical land name terms, <laughs> 2015. Okay. So my, <laughs> my second question is, has how did your student come up with this question was it just they looked at the map and said hey that's weird or have they actually been to this part of minnesota I i'm curious as to how this this question uh, came up in your respective classes i'm gonna have to circle back and let you know but uh gavin really strikes me as a map loving kind of guy and i feel like he probably knew this he may even know this story and was just really throwing me a bone um I, I'll let you know. I'm quite curious. This was a really specific, interesting question. It, it absolutely was. And all, I agree. I, I love a good map. It's always something. Hey, just students, just so you know, if you're ever looking for a good gift to give to one of your history teachers, get them a cool old map. They'll probably oh. love it. Or like a quirky, like fun map that shows like weird things. Yes, or weird things or defunct. Yeah, weird things or defunct things with names that aren't real anymore or don't get used. That that's that is that is catnip for your your history teachers in the future, everyone. So just uh, just file that away for yourselves. All right, all right. I gotta I gotta take a breather. That one really got me going. <laughs> okay, Colleen asks, what were the most historically monumental events? that took place for women as far as obtaining equal rights goes? So I this was a question that I received from one of my students, and I think it's an awesome, awesome question. I'm Colleen, thank you so much for passing this one along. What I'd like to do to start at least is I'd like to defer to Mrs. Allgood on this one, because although I have an, an, an answer, or at least what I think is my opinion on this answer, I wanted to give Mrs. Allgood a chance to answer this question first, because I think it's it's important, I think, from a female historian's perspective, maybe what what your thoughts are before I before I dive into this question. Yeah, and I'm curious to see what you have as well. So I really haven't studied women's history in the way of like having looked at the monumental things that have happened. I've studied women's history, but more like colonial America, early America, way before co serious conversations about equality and voting rights and stuff are coming up, which I think leads me to argue that the less monumental historical events had a greater impact on the path towards equal rights for women. Um, and I think that this is actually like a pretty common trend that we see when we look at any marginalized groups movement towards equality or equal rights. And um, it, it's this way of how people learn to work within systems of oppression, whether it be racial with the civil rights movement or patriarchal with the women's rights movement. So you work within these systems to find ways to empower yourself and empower each other within your group to gradually break these systems down. So it's really, the stories of the women and the people that you don't hear about had, I think, just as great as an impact on the fight for civil rights or women's rights as Title IX would or the future Equal Rights Amendment. Um, 
the, the legal actions put in place, mostly by men, wouldn't have happened if we didn't see that type of grassroots everyday resistance to begin with. So not not a clear answer, kind of convoluted, but that that was my initial take on that. So that actually offers a really good segue into what what I put down for for my answer, and this all you referenced it, and this actually gets to another question that uh, my student Melanie sent in, and and my answer is Title Nine. So just for the listeners, just so you know a little bit more about this. So in 1965, Congress passed the Higher Education Act, which was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. And the Higher Education Act provided federal financial assistance to post-secondary and higher education, so colleges and universities. It created scholarships for low-income students. Um, It created low-interest loans for low-income students. But it was often applied in a discriminatory way in terms of the opportunities that men got as opposed to women. So... In 1972, the Higher Education Act was amended to include a new section, which was entitled Title IX. And Title IX states that, quote, no person in the United States shall, based on sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So to translate that, basically what the law does in practice is if a college or university receives federal funds, which almost all U.S. colleges and universities do, both public and private universities, if that's the case, they have to provide equal opportunities for men and women in terms of all sorts of areas. So in terms of recruitment of students, admissions decisions, financial aid, employment of women employees, disciplinary procedures, and probably the area where Title IX is most often talked about in athletics. This is probably the thing that Title IX is most often known for. So prior to 1972, women's college athletics really didn't exist. They received almost no funding Women athletes were often treated as second-class citizens compared to men's programs. They were given meager budgets for equipment and supplies. They were offered little or no practice time. They were given substandard locker rooms and training facilities. They really didn't have the budgets to hire professional coaches. Frequently, their coaches were volunteers or a teacher doing something else. And so what Title IX ensures is that women are given the same opportunities as men in educational settings. And and I would argue it's one of the most important civil rights laws in in U.S. history. And, And you can look at the statistically, the percentage of women participating in sports has gone up, I mean, hundreds of percent prior to and after uh, Title IX. Uh, we see, you know, the women's final four now with college basketball. Women are participating in across the NCAA, and we see women participating in sports at the high school level. And a lot of that has to do with the sort of, you know, the domino effect of Title IX. So, and, and you know, I, I come to this as someone who's a sports fan who loves sports. We've done a number of episodes on athletes, and I think this is one of those really clear-cut examples of something that really substantively improved the lives of women and offered them opportunities that they, that they wouldn't have, that they weren't getting before. I'll just quickly add that. I think, you know, speak, thinking of this question a little bit more broadly, I think if you study the suffrage movement, you study women's rights movements, you're going to learn a lot about how effective progress and change was made over time. You know, Mrs. Allgood mentioned uh, the importance of the grassroots movements. You know, I think a lot of times, those type of bottom-up movements or processes can be a lot more effective overall than uh, when it's top-down. So next question, Sarah asks, why does the Liberty Bell have a crack in it? So this this, uh, question came from uh, one of my students. So thank you, Sarah, for passing this along. Um, This is the kind of stuff on Who Knew a History podcast that Mrs. Allgood and I love talking about because oftentimes it's you go to a place and you 
you know, you go down the grocery store aisle and you see a can of food or, you know, a can of Chef Boyardee and you're like, you know, how did he end up on the cannon? Is that a real person? And, you know, how did Coca-Cola get invented? And, you know, if you've ever been to Philadelphia and you've been by the Liberty Bell, you're probably like, why does this thing have a crack in it? So uh, did a little bit of digging. And here's what I found from the National Park Service. Quote, no one recorded when or why the Liberty Bell first cracked, which I think is a hysterical line from the Park Service. But the most likely explanation is that it began to crack in the 1840s after nearly 90 years of hard use. The bell was installed in the tower of the Pennsylvania State House in the early 1750s. And for those of you who have ever been to Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania State House would later become known as Independence Hall. It's where the Declaration of Independence was debated and drafted and signed. It's also where the U.S. Constitution was debated and drafted and signed. And it's a, it's a really cool building. And, and outside of, of Independence Hall, there is a, a sort of an area, there's sort of a, it's sort of an open air building, I would say, and it houses where it houses the Liberty Bell. So in 1846, the city of Philadelphia decided to repair the bell in preparation for George Washington's birthday holiday, which was celebrated on February 22nd. But when workers tried to repair the first crack, a second crack developed and they were forced to stop using the bell. So um, they didn't destroy it. They didn't melt it down. They've maintained it. And you can see the Liberty Bell right outside of Independence Hall. But it's uh, but I, I just loved it when as I was starting my research, literally the first line of the Park Service website was no one really knows. No one wrote down when and no one wrote down why it started cracking. Oh, if any of you listeners go on to study history in college and have to go look into like primary sources and original records and stuff, that is the most frustrating thing in the world. <laughs> but it's also so typical. Of course, no one wrote it down to them. Like, oh, it was just a crack. Not that important. You knew that it would become so iconic. Which, of course, is so funny, Mrs. Allgood, because you and I have talked about this before on the uh, on our podcast and, and in private. We have some historical figures that seemingly wrote down everything that happened to them every day, every second, every moment of their lives. And then you have other people who didn't write down anything. So I think it's really funny how, in my opinion, there is no middle ground. You either wrote no. everything down or you wrote nothing down. It's nothing pretty rare to find anything in, in the middle here. <laughs> Andrew asks, when did we start calling Americans Americans? All right. This was one of my Andrews. Um, I This has been on my mind a lot lately. It's a really cool question. And we're really getting into this question a bit more in our A push class. Um, so like the, the question that I took this to mean was when did we stop thinking of ourselves as citizens of our state first before citizens of our country? So like, when did we stop being Virginians and Mississippians and become Americans? And my usual answer to this is the Civil War, because I heard it in the Ken Burns documentary. Um, but this question has really just been kind of keeping me up the last couple of nights. Um, it just, it didn't feel like that was a good enough answer. So I Googled it and what I found was really surprising and it doesn't answer Andrew's question in the way that I interpreted it, but it's still interesting. So what I did find since the beginning of the country's founding, there's really been questions over what to call people from the United States of America. So are we the United Statesmen, United States people? It doesn't have the same ring as Americans. Um, back in the day in the 18th and 19th century, um, people in, in charge like presidents or statesmen called the U.S. either the Union, the Republic, the United States. Um, America was being used by some, but not universally. And that's definitely not what you would have called people from America. Um, I mean, if we think about it, America is also easily applied to countries in South America and Central America. And then 
the period of American imperialism happened in the late 19th century and things changed and we decided we're the America and everyone else is peripheral. Womp, womp. Um, particularly, Andrew, if you want to like put a, a, like a, a tag on this to say this is when people started calling us America and Americans. The Spanish-American War and the rise of Teddy Roosevelt would be your answer to this. Um, the Spanish-American War would prove the dominance of the United States in the Western Hemisphere, particularly over Latin America. That's when we became the America and everyone else became South and Central America. Um, Teddy Roosevelt also referred to us as America in his first inaugural speech, and that's when it really started to stick. So late 1890s, early 1900s. Okay, next question. Lena and Grace H. asks, what made you and Mr. Rickson think of the idea to do a podcast for the rising juniors to listen to? Mrs. Olga, do you want to start with uh, your, your version of the story, and then we'll see if my version matches up with yours? Yeah, um, we were really bored and sad, and at least I was, and I missed hanging out in the faculty lounge and having conversations with Mr. Rickson about, hey, did you know about this? Hey, guess what I just learned from blank student? Did you know that? Blah, blah, blah. And I really missed having these conversations with my friend every day where I could go learn history, and it was a really fun way to make quarantine less terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I, I completely echo echo that. I think that, you know, Mrs. Allgood is absolutely right. And, and, you know, so I guess this is a little of inside baseball for all of our students. So, yes, history teachers are that nerdy. When we go to the faculty lounge or we are not in class, we are very often talking about a book that we're reading or a podcast that we're listening to. And this is this is what we do. And it, 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 there's no question that when we were all stuck at home last spring, as COVID-19 started, Mrs. Allgood and I wanted, we, we really did it for, I think, a couple reasons. I think there's no question there was the camaraderie aspect. Um, we were, we were bored. I mean, you know, although we had stuff to grade, we weren't, you know, most of our work was review at that point. And we wanted to, I think, give students something that would keep them engaged over, you know, over the quarantine or over the, the social distancing. It helped us do some research of our own. Um, I, I, I certainly learned a whole lot about topics that I wasn't really knowledgeable of or interested in. I'm so grateful that we did it because I, I learned how to do audio editing. I, I, that's one of the real skills that I grabbed over the, over the course of, of this experience. And, and it's become this, this wonderful thing. We've, we've had guests, you know, guest teachers come in, Mr. Kaskove included, Ms. Cottrell has joined us. We have, you know, we've gotten listener feedback and, and what's so wonderful, I think, is we, we hear from all of you, you know, sometimes I, I think, as we said before, you know, teachers oftentimes don't have a great grasp of whether students like something. We know when you guys dislike something, because you're pretty honest <laughs> about it, but it, it was so flattering for me to hear the students say to us that I loved your podcast. We listened to it in the car. My dad thought it was really cool. Uh, you know, we we were so flattered that the the show was featured in the Arlington Catholic Herald. That was that was really flattering, and and we're just and we're we're going to continue doing it. And and really, a lot of it just speaks to the the enthusiasm and the energy that the students have have brought to it. And it's uh it's been really great. It, it's really been a wonderful collaboration. And uh, we're I'm I'm glad that you know this year has obviously been super super challenging but this is this is definitely one of the highlights for me is is doing this and putting it out in the world and and really just having having fun with history heck yeah all right next question kelly asks what does the d in d day stand for kelly kelly the hard hitting questions all right um before i give the answer um mr kaskov mr rickson What's your guess? Mr. Kasikov. Don't already know the answer to this. Mr. Kasikov, do you want to go first? I have no guess. I have no idea what the D-Day stands for. You know, give me give me your best guess. Uh Detroit, is it? Detroit Day? Is that what it is? Okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. So Mr. Rickson? 
So for me, first off, I want to shout out my student, Jamal, because Jamal asked the same question in uh, <laughs> on, on the Dropbox. So I, I have always thought that the D stood for decision. So it was decision day, the, you know, obviously the the, the, the decision to have that land invasion, that you know, invasion of, of the Normandy beach to get into Europe. So I've always thought the D stood for the word decision. Cool. I thought it meant destruction day, um, but I do like Detroit day. That's pretty fun. So uh, I Googled this and according to the National World War II Museum, it's one of the most commonly asked questions at the museum. And Guests are usually pretty disappointed to find out that it just means day. D stands for day, so it's day day. What? Yep, it just means day. It's alliterative. It just, I guess it works with military lingo. Same thing for H hour. H means hour. D means day. There are multiple D days. We just really know about that one. So was it, was it like <laughs> code? Was it code based? Was it trying to make sure that the, the access powers didn't know when D-Day actually was? Is that kind of the thinking of it a little bit? No, it had another nickname or code name, and I forgot to write it down. Operation Neptune? Wow, look who didn't do her research. Wow, you're you're not going to get full credit for that answer, Mrs. Allgood. (laughs) Partial credit, partial credit. Um, But no, they had another nickname for that. D-Day is just like I don't, I just got famous outside of actual D-Day. I don't know. I don't know. It just means day. Well, Quick. there you go. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, so I have to say, I'm sorry, Kelly. And I'm sorry, Jamal. That's actually kind of a disappointing answer. I so lame. <laughs> but on a better note, the assault phase was named Operation Overlord. Um, oh. Thank you. And there was another, uh, yeah, the Soviet was Operation Overlord, also known as Operation Neptune. Uh, I'm not sure how that how that fits in exactly, but that's oh. so. I would imagine that Neptune probably comes from the fact that it was an amphibious assault. The fact yeah. that they came from the English Channel onto the Normandy beach. So that's that's probably where that that name comes from, right? Neptune being the the Roman god of of the of the oceans. That's probably where they used that that phrase. Makes sense. All right. Next question from an anonymous student. Who are your favorite underrated people slash groups of people in history? Mrs. Allgood, I'm going to let you go first because you had a very specific answer. Mine is a little bit broader, but I I always love your answer because you, again, we talked about what do we talk about in the faculty lounge. This topic comes up a lot and Mrs. Allgood has a very specific answer. Very specific answer. Um, And those students who really get me on my tangents, uh, you're probably familiar with this as well. I'm five feet tall and growing up, you know, I was always like, what if I was taller? Could I do greater things? Could I be a true American at my height? And then one day I learned James Madison was only five foot two. And it was like, really got me thinking. I'm like, there's some really cool short people in American history. So since that day, when I learned about our country's shortest president, I've just kind of been collecting a Rolodex of like, other really petite people in American history, and it makes me really happy. Uh, so we got James Madison, fourth president, hero of the War of 1812, clocking it at 5'2 or 5'4, depending on who you ask. Andrew Carnegie, the magnate of the steel industry. Was he steel? I don't remember. I think he was steel. Five foot two. Five foot two. Who knew? Who knew? Harry Houdini, who knew? Five foot four. Uh, My personal favorite, Ida B. Wells, four foot 11. Uh, When she sat on the all white section of a train on her way to Memphis in the late 1890s, it took two men, two grown men to manhandle her off of this train because she was like, no, I'm sitting here. Amazing. And then finally, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, five foot one a bulwark of equality for women. Um, So yeah, short Americans in history, super underrated, unseen, but amazing. 
So I would just like to give a shout out. Mrs. Allgood mentioned Ida B. Wells. We recorded an episode earlier this year on Ida B. Wells, and I would encourage our student listeners to check out that episode if you're looking at, if you're interested in the issues of race and segregation and Jim Crow, Ida B. Wells fits into that. If you're, you know, we had a question about women's rights and women's equality, Ida B. Wells fits into that. If you're looking about a podcast about investigative journalism, Ida B. Wells was an investigative journalist. And She's amazing. Uh, Mrs. Allgood gives an, uh, a much more in-depth account of that train, uh, that train circumstance, that train story. Um, oh, she gets story. super animated when she tells the story. So please <laughs> tune in to that to that episode. It's a, it's one of the best ones I think we did. It was a lot of fun. Oh. Well, how about you, Mr. Rixon? So I think that as I was thinking about this, you know, I was trying to think of a particular person or a particular group or, and, and I was really kind of having a hard time. And, and I think that in history, we have a tendency to focus on major figures, major political figures or military figures. And I think this gets to what Mrs. Allgood said about women's rights and women's equality. History often skews towards the person who passed the law or the person who signed the bill or the person who won the battle. But oftentimes history is made by the lived experience of, of everyday people. And, and so often people experienced the same challenges hundreds of years ago that we're facing today. So I would encourage our, our listeners, if you're, if you're looking for good history to read in the Washington post, there's a great, recurring series of articles entitled Retropolis or Retroopolis. And it often tries to connect current events with stuff that's happening in the past or things, things that did happen in the past. And it just so happens that yesterday there was a piece on Abigail Adams, who was the wife of John Adams, who was the second president of the United States. And it was an article talking about how she and John Adams had their four children inoculated for a deadly disease that was causing a pandemic in the colonies and it was smallpox and smallpox was the COVID-19 of the 18th century it was a very fast spreading disease some people contracted it and they developed very minor cases um, many other people died in fact the article noted that over a hundred 100 people or excuse me 100,000 people died of smallpox in the colonies during the American Revolution. And it goes into these wonderful letters of, of course, you know, John Adams, he's, you know, he's the, he's the lawyer at the Boston Massacre, right? He defends the British soldiers against all odds, right? No one wants him to take the case, right? He signs the Declaration of Independence. He's our ambassador to France and England. He is the second president of the United States. He's the first vice president. He's one of these just towering figures of early American history. But he worried about his kids getting sick and he was worried with his wife and they were concerned about, you know, what happens if our kids get sick? What happens if we get sick? That's so prescient to what we're all experiencing right now with COVID-19 and quite frankly, the hopefully soon to be vaccine, right? Will we be able to get the vaccine? Will our kids be able to get it? What happens if I get sick? Um, I often think when I read stuff like that, it's nice to know that historical figures who achieved extraordinary things often worried about really ordinary stuff, right? They worried about their financial circumstances. They worried about their kids. They worried about their legacies. They worried about the weather. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, it's, I, I always enjoy stuff like that because it helps me appreciate that these figures for all their flaws and all their foibles, and many of them were flawed people, they were still able to achieve great things. And, and those are the kinds of stories that I absolutely love in, in reading, uh, reading about history, um, not just American history, but really history overall. Quick fact check, Andrew Carnegie was indeed a steel industrialist. He was one of the richest Americans. He was actually technically Scottish American um, of the late 18th, early 19th, uh, 19th century. Uh, so maybe he is one of the most underrated uh, people in history. All right. How about that? In question from me, what is one of the most underappreciated areas of history? Similar type question. You know, I'll, uh, I'll take the reins on this one first because I don't know how long I can go on this. Um, 
I'd like to make the case for military history. Also, because I really underappreciate military history, I don't care for battles and movements and weapons and stuff. It's just, it's not my cup of tea. But um, I was reading this article from one of my VCU professors the other day about why military history should be taught in schools or at least at the university level, especially if you live in a, a republic like the United States. Um, your military represents you uh, in order to have a an ethical military, uh, you need to be an informed civilian about what's going on and be part of those um, decisions that get made in Congress about where your military goes and what they do and how much funding they should get. And I think it's kind of helpful to understand um, really the, the context of where a lot of that fits in. I still don't love it. It's not fun. It's like eating vegetables at dinner, but like, it's one of those things where like, you really need it for a well-balanced meal. So my response to this question, Mr. Kaskov, is I really like, and I think it kind of gets to my, the previous answer that I gave. And really a lot of, I think the episodes that Mrs. Allgood and I have done kind of lean into this is I would call it maybe everyday history or maybe consumer history. You know, Mrs. Allgood and I did an episode on Chef Boyardee, and Chef Boyardee is one of those things that I've probably walked past in the grocery store literally my entire life, and I really haven't thought much of it, and Mrs. Allgood had the good sense to say, you know, hey, is this, was this a real person, and what, is he just a caricature, or is he a cartoon, or what, what really happened, and we, as we sort of unpacked this episode, we talked about the history of Italian immigration. We talked about the history of Mrs. Allgood's favorite city, Cleveland, Ohio. We talked about World War II. We talked about the Great Depression. And all of this was sort of around this very commonplace food item. We did an episode on George Lucas and the Star Wars trilogy. And that's, again, a part of consumer culture, mass culture that everyone knows about and a lot of people absorb. But there's a really great context around how that movie was made and how it changed the film industry, both from you know a marketing perspective, but also a technical perspective. We did an episode on Chuck Berry. I mean, all of us have heard Chuck Berry songs and records. And you know, right now we're you know listening to Christmas music. And one of my favorite... Christmas songs is Run Run Rudolph by Chuck Berry. And when I listen to it, I think about him growing up in segregated St. Louis and becoming a rock musician and, and really, really inventing rock and roll, which has stood the test of time for over 50, 60 years now. So I, I always like those, those things where it's like, it's things that we consume every day, but we don't really stop to think about where it came from or how it was invented or, or what its origins were. And, you know, Mrs. Allgood has, we've done episodes about, you know, Esther Williams and the film industry. I know Mrs. Allgood has a real love for old Hollywood. And I think that's always a fun thing to think about. So, you know, my, mine is sort of um, those everyday things that we don't think about, but, you know, more often than not have a really remarkable history behind them. Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest things that comes from studying and reading history is this lesson that everything has a history. Everything has a story of how it got to where it is and how it is. I think that's a really cool answer. Okay, final question. This is a two-parter. Who is the best U.S. president and which one would you least want to have dinner with? Oh, I read that as most want to have dinner with. Well, you oh. can answer it that way if you want to give us both. No, this is no, all no, 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 no. Gonna stick, gonna stick to your interpretation, Mr. Kaskov. Um, why don't we start with best president, Mr. Rickson? Do you like off the top of your head have a best U.S. president? So I think for me, it's probably a tie between Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. I think those would be my. Those would be, I think, in my top two. And I'd have to, I think if you caught me on a different day, I might have a different answer. But I, I think just because the students and I, you know, we just have been starting looking at the Civil War, we're getting into Reconstruction this week. I, I'm always just, I'm fascinated by, by Lincoln. I think that 
the challenges that, you know, Lincoln's the only president that had to confront a civil war. Like literally he shows up in Washington and the country's being torn apart. And for just his, his grace, his wit, his wisdom, he was, you know, I think a very moral and decent leader. And I think that we were, how lucky were we as a nation that we got Abraham Lincoln to be our commander in chief at the outset of, of the civil war. You know, I think a lesser man or a lesser president, I think we would have been in a whole lot of trouble. And, and I think the same can be said for FDR, right? FDR comes to office in the midst of the great depression and is, you know, tells us all we have nothing to fear, but fear itself and, and helps, helps lift us up, not just out of the great depression, but getting us ready to confront the second world war. I think that, you know, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, we kind of think about this in history a lot, right? The moment makes the man or the moment makes the person. And I think that the fact that both of those figures were presented with those challenges and confronted them and overcame them is, is, is pretty remarkable. I think, again, if, if another person ends up in that position in that moment, you know, perhaps, perhaps we're telling a different history. No, I think you make a good point, right. Of being in the right place at the right time. I mean, sometimes power chooses you and there's just really no way out of it, which is why my favorite president, old classic, George Washington, you will not change my mind. I just, what, what an amazing person to have been in charge at the forefront of creating a republic. It's so hard to create a democracy that functions well. And I think had we had anyone else in charge who was so not really about himself and more about putting the country together, really kind of being a hands-off president, mostly wanted to retire, really didn't want the job, um, but went and did it anyway. I mean, just what the epitome of public service. Uh, what a cool guy. Also great at riding horses. Um, really good interior decorator if you've ever been to Mount Vernon. And, uh, you know, our boy knows how to draw a good map with all that land surveying. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So Mrs. Olgood makes an interesting point, and, and I'm curious to get Mr. Kasikov's opinion on this, because I know that he has taught world history um, for a couple years at Bishop O'Connell. You know, Washington is really kind of unique in the history of, of revolutionaries, because more mm -hmm. often than not, when there's a revolutionary leader, they oftentimes then win their revolution and then sort of go against their revolutionary principles. I'm thinking of Napoleon during the French Revolution, right? He creates an empire after the French Revolution, which is obviously not, not anything close to the ideals of the French Republic. I'm thinking of Mao Zedong. I'm thinking of Fidel Castro, Ho Chi Minh. It's so, and I think, again, Mrs. Allgood is absolutely right here, that we were so fortunate to have a figure like Washington who who didn't really want to assume that power, that really had to be convinced after the revolution and after the Treaty of Paris and after the Constitutional Convention that you're the person to pick. And he's sort of the no-brainer, but to have such grace and dignity and really really to put the country above himself and his own interests is we were, again, I think that all of us as Americans were very, very blessed to, to have that example. And, and it just goes to show you, you know, we talk about this with our, with our students with that two term, that self-imposed two term limit that stood the test of time for American presidents from 1790 to 1932. It, it really is remarkable that that, precedent was this and was so steadfast for for American leaders uh, really for you know for much of our of our national history so who would you least like to have dinner with oh man I feel bad uh, you know kind of kind of dumping on some of these uh, some of these figures um so I would say you know I I, I'll actually offer one that I think maybe my students will be surprised by. Um, I don't think, as as cool a figure as I think he is, I don't know if I would want to have dinner with Teddy Roosevelt, because <laughs> I probably wouldn't be able to say a single word. It would probably be one of the most exhausting experiences of of my life, right? He would just be you know, he's all, he's so big and he's got the big teeth and apparently he was a real fast talker and 
you know, he's probably just going to, you know, forcefully shake my hand and tell me a million things. And I would leave and I would just think, you know, what literally what just, what just happened to me. So, you know, I, as much as I would love to, to have dinner with Roosevelt, with TR, my guess is the actual experience would not match what, what my expectations were going into the dinner. See, you and I have discussed this at length more, more than a few times. Um, and my original thought would also be Teddy Roosevelt. He sounds exhausting, <laughs> um, especially as an introvert. I'm like, oh my gosh. But the more I thought about it, Calvin Coolidge, mm. the opposite end of that spectrum, sounds even worse. Silent Cal, right? He probably wouldn't say a word to you. You'd just be like, come on, like, give me, give me something, right? Like I would, I would try to engage in small talk for five minutes. That's about where I max out. And then I just kind of start staring off awkwardly into space. Um, I wouldn't know how to carry that conversation if someone's not initiating it. So I'm going to go Calvin Coolidge. What an awkward duck. Mr. Kasikov, do you have an answer? Because this, you actually, this was sort of a combo of um, you posed this question, but then we also included, I think a number of students asked us similar questions. So what, yeah. what, what would you say to this one? So I think I'd, you know, I don't know if I have a least uh, favorite or least want to have dinner with, but I would have to disagree respectfully with both of you that I think Theodore Roosevelt would definitely be in my top one to three people I'd most want to have dinner with. Kind of for the opposite, yes, I think it would be hard to get a word in edgewise, but I also think there is not uh, a president you could probably learn more from uh, spending dinner with. And then maybe going to the, uh, but this is where I think I'll uh, agree with you, Mr. Rickson, a little bit over Mrs. Allgood. I think, you know, you can't say Washington was not a great president, but I have to go with Lincoln being the better president because he faced a tougher challenge yeah. navigating the Civil War. Now, Washington, as you guys both spoke uh, about, he definitely did a really good job of setting important precedents for American democracy. But, you know, we can never do the counterfactual. But I think what doesn't get enough credit in, you know, keeping the republic alive is the Constitution. So theoretically speaking, let's say there is no Washington, maybe John Adams is our first president. You know, would things have turned out differently? Yes. But I think we would, uh, we would still be here. Yeah, well, well said. So, I mean, I'm just to go back to Roosevelt. I'm not saying it wouldn't be it would be quite a story, but I'm just thinking of the, the sort of experience in the moment. I would probably and you know, Mrs. Allgood makes the good point. You know, Mrs. Allgood, I know, is a little bit more of an introvert. I definitely much think of myself as an extrovert, but even in my case, I would think, would I actually get to say anything in this conversation <laughs> with Teddy Roosevelt? So there's actually. Um, for those listeners who have uh, who have watched the Ken Burns documentary, The Roosevelts, um, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a great anecdote in that documentary from the historian David McCullough about exactly this. It's an anecdote about someone who who met President Roosevelt and sat with him in the in what was then called the Executive Mansion. Of course, that's the White House, and I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's it very much keeps in line with what what some of us have been talking about today. Oh my gosh, we are the biggest nerds ever. I love it. <laughs> hey, you know what? The students pay for what, pay for what they get, right? This is what they wanted. They wanted us to answer nerdy history questions. So here we are answering their nerdy history questions. Give the people what they want. That's exactly right. <laughs> two two quick points. I I'm a little surprised that you guys would both not rather have dinner with uh, Teddy over Andrew Johnson. That's that's point number one. And then speaking of, you know, Roosevelt's, I think uh, FDR, um, as you were talking about, Mrs. Allgood, I think he's one of the most important presidents to study, not necessarily because he's the best, but I think he's one of the most uh, maybe misunderstood. I think he can both be simultaneously overrated and underrated for all the good and, you know, not so good things he may have done. Oh, yeah, I had a, I had a, I can't get into FDR. Um, but also, Mr. Kasikov, your question was, who was the best president? Not who would you most like to have dinner with? No, in which I, yeah. Case, yeah. In which case, have done so much thinking and discussing on this. Uh, <laughs> either Ulysses S. Grant or Gerald Ford. I think they would be wonderful people to have for dinner on a first date. Neither Very here good. nor there. Good time. Good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> 
They are both total Hufflepuffs. I'm about it. <laughs> well, all right, gang. Um, it looks like we are really running down the clock here. I don't think that we have any other questions. Mr. Kasikov, is there anything else that you wanted to run by us before we head out today? No, I think we definitely covered a lot of really good questions. You know, we uh, covered a lot of history. So this is a really good conversation. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, to everyone who's still listening, thank you. Again, this is Who Knew, a history podcast. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us and you are our student, you're welcome to email Mr. Rickson or myself. You can also find us on the Instagram at Who Knew History. We'll be updating uh, that page with information about this episode and cool maps of Minnesota and pictures of presidents after we're done recording today. So for all of our uh, current and hopefully new listeners, you can find all of our Who New episodes on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Anchor.fm. So as Mrs. Allgood and I said, we are, we're fully prepared to do a season two, which probably will get underway as we get closer to the end of the school year. But please do stay tuned and subscribe to this feed. We'll probably be doing a couple more bonus episodes between now and the end of the school year. And uh, we're certainly appreciative of Mr. Casico for coming in and, uh, and, and joining us today. It was, uh, was a lot of fun. And, and again, we want to thank all the students who sent in questions. They were, they were absolutely great. Um, and we're so excited that, uh, that so many people participated in, in this episode. And this is Mr. Rickson. And I'm Mrs. Allgood. Uh, if you're still listening, I hope you learned something good today. Thanks so much, everybody. And we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you in the next installment of Who Knew a History Podcast. Take care, everybody. Bye.